Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Several years in and still no National Guard component for the Space Force. What Space Force got in the most recent defense authorization bill is a feasibility study. We get more now from the Colorado National Guard Brigadier General Michael Bruno. General Bruno, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to join you today. All right. And what is your feeling about this development in the NDAA? Because a lot of people from Space Force and Air Force have frankly said it's about time for a National Guard there. And I completely agree with what you're saying. So first, I do need to uh, say that up front that my opinions are my own, do not reflect the opinions of the Colorado National Guard, the United States Air Force, or the Department of Defense. The 2024 NDAA, the one thing it didn't do is it did not establish a Space National Guard. It does, however, require the Secretary of Defense to conduct an interim briefing by the 1st of February and a study by the 1st of March to assess the feasibility and advisability of moving all Air National Guard space functions to the Space Force. This assessment will analyze three course of actions, that is maintain the status quo, what we're doing today, supporting space missions from the Air National Guard, move all Air National Guard space assets to the U.S. Space Force, or, and hopefully the or is what we're looking for, is create a Space National Guard. Is there anything to be learned, do you think, from like the Marine Corps, which is kind of like the Space Force in some respects, that it has a nominally, at least, parent organization called the Navy, and Space Force came out of the Air Force. Is there anything that's analog there that could be used for these learnings? So there is. So you're absolutely right. The way the Space Force works now is they're all teeth, no tail. They do all the operations side of the house while Air Force does most of the support functions for them. So medical, defense, same as the Navy does for the Marine Corps. What's different, though, is under the new NDAA, Space Force is going to become a branch without a service component. So they are going to this brand new, uh, one time it was called the Space Force Personnel Management Act, but they're going to this brand new construct where they don't have a component. People will serve in an active status, inactive status, or a reserve status. So this is an experiment in a new way of doing business for a branch of the military. So what does that mean then for a National Guard possibility? So we think that they can do both at the same time. So the Space Force Personnel Management Act is pretty much encompassing the reserve status of having a Space Force Reserve. So you have those folks that are doing active status, those folks that are doing an inactive status, and then the retirees. But you could also have a Space National Guard, which would be your surge to war capability. We are already doing that surge to war capability supporting combat commanders. So that would give you that capability. So they could both function together. And that's our hope is that's what happens. Maybe it's good to review Space Force's operational responsibilities now and how that could translate to a reserve force that would be called up. I mean, what would need to be augmented, for example, in a national emergency with Space Force? Because, again, there's no kinetic operation in space quite yet. You're absolutely correct. But currently, the National Guard does 60 percent of the Space Force's electromagnetic warfare capabilities. And this is both uplink and downlink from satellites, either disrupting or putting things into 
the system. And that is a capability that COCOM commanders really have an appetite for. And since we're already doing 60% of that mission, why not keep us in the fold and continue to have us do that mission? We're speaking with Brigadier General Michael Bruno. He's director of the Joint Staff for the Colorado National Guard. And in its statement on this development in the NDAA and not getting the uh, Space Force National Guard this year again, the National Guard Association said that the analysis called for is mostly complete. And they also said that transferring roughly 1,000 Air National Guard space units in eight states and territories to a single component Space Force is not feasible. Unit commanders have surveyed their personnel and the majority want to stay in the National Guard. So what's going on with that statement? The statement that individuals want to stay with the National Guard? Yeah. Absolutely. So we recently conducted another survey and about 80% of them want to stay in the National Guard. These are individuals that live in their communities, want to continue to serve both federally and at the state level. So approximately 20% would be willing to transfer to this new, no-component branch of service. So that 80% would have to be recruited and then retrained to do the missions that we currently do. The Guard's been doing these missions for approximately 27 years, and that goes back to the 137th out of Greeley, Colorado. So we have some of the most senior space professionals doing space operations at this time. So if they create the Space Force, don't create a Space National Guard, and only get 20% of our force, they've got to make up that other 80% by recruiting and training those individuals. And it's our opinion, and it's the National Guard Bureau opinion out of the Pentagon, that it would take seven to 10 years to develop a space professional from scratch to where we currently are. So there's a capability and a readiness gap right there for seven to 10 years. Yeah, and there's a considerable opportunity cost, I guess, then for that eight to 10 years in real dollars? Absolutely. So unfortunately, that cost is immeasurable. National Guard Bureau has put out some numbers, uh, and again, National Guard Bureau out of the Pentagon, that it will cost approximately a billion dollars to transfer everything that is currently done in the Air National Guard space missions to the U.S. Space Force. And this includes all the training and also the equipment, the facilities that would be required and everything that goes with it. So a billion dollars and that seven to 10 years worth of readiness. They've also figured if we just create a Space National Guard, take those 1,000 service members in 14 units, and currently it's only seven states. So take those individuals and change them to Space National Guard, it would cost about $250,000 versus a billion. We're talking changing name tapes and changing signage and guidons at the unit level. That's your cost. All right. So what is the course next, just to wait for that study? And what do we know about who's going to conduct it and who's going to evaluate it? So <laughs> that's an interesting question. So the study is actually being done by the Department of Defense. The requirement that came out of Congress is for the Secretary of Defense to do this study. So it will be interesting. And again, this is where we go that my opinions don't reflect those of Colorado National Guard, Air Force, or DOD. It will be interesting if that report even sees the light of day. And the reason being is the White House's Office of Management and Budget has said there will not be a Space National Guard. They don't support a Space National Guard. Well, the Secretary of Defense works for 
the administration. He works for the White House. So when the White House OMB says there will not be a Space National Guard, it's hard for them to push anything out that says anything against that position. So we'll see if anything comes out of that. The analysis, again, done by DOD, and then it's supposed to be presented to Congress. So Congress is who's going to look at it and then make determinations. And that's really what we're looking for, is for Congress to make the determination, is what's the best thing for the United States and the citizens right now. And I still think it's established the Space National Guard today. Brigadier General Michael Bruno is director of the Joint Staff for the Colorado National Guard. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.